0: Welcome to the Hungry Authors Podcast. A hungry author is someone who is, quite simply, hungry for it. They're willing to do what it takes to achieve their writing dreams. If that resonates,
1: you're in the right place. I'm Ariel. And I'm Liz. We're two book coaches, editors, and writers here to help you get there. We interview experts and chat about all things publishing and writing to educate and build a community of successful writers, whatever that means to you. Welcome. Let's get started.
0: Hello, Hungry Authors. This is Ariel. And you know by now that I am just fascinated by the publishing industry and how decisions get made about what books to publish. I thought a lot about this in my former career as an acquisitions editor, and it continues to be a passion topic for me. So when Liz and I discovered that our amazing agent, Don Pape, used to work for Stephen Rubin, who, as you'll learn, was an executive in some of the big five publishers, I asked him to arrange an introduction so that we could ask Stephen to be on the podcast. They both said yes, and here we are. So Stephen Rubin started as an executive editor at Bantam Books before being named president and publisher of Doubleday, and then he spent three years in London at Transworld Publishers. He also served as president and publisher of Henry Holt until 2020, and he's currently a consulting publisher for Simon & Schuster. Hopefully you recognize some of those names of those publishing houses. These are some of the big movers and shakers of the publishing world. And Steven Rubin was and is often in the room where it happens. He's also written a book called Words and Music Confessions of an Optimist. It's his memoir about his time as a journalist and as an insider in the world of publishing. I highly recommend it. It is absolutely fascinating. Before we get into the interview, though, I just want to say that there are a few publishing terms that get thrown around in our conversation that you might not be familiar with if you haven't been through the publishing process before. So if you don't know what a royalty is or haven't heard of the auction process in publishing, we see you, we hear you. We're going to link to some of the definitions in the show notes, but as a hungry author, I know you love learning and you're not going to let some jargon stop you from making progress. The other quick thing is that there's some background noise and feedback in this episode. So bear with us and thank you for your patience let's get into it. Stephen, we're super excited to have you today. Thank you so much for being here.
2: It's a pleasure to be here. Lovely to meet you both.
0: Thank you. And so for those who haven't read your book yet, which we hope that they will, especially after hearing all of this, but could you just briefly share kind of how you got into publishing? You know, your first job I think was at Bantam. So how, how did that all come about?
2: Um, I I had a full career for over a decade as a journalist, and one of the things I did as a journalist was a syndicated publishing column, which I did with a colleague of mine now deceased. Uh, She was great, and it was really good. It was a seriously good publishing column in that we spent a lot of time on it because it was only once a week as opposed to these publishing columns that are daily or whatever. So it was very well reported. And we did that for years. And it was syndicated in places like the Chicago Tribune, really good newspapers. And one of the sources that I had as a regular source was the then publisher of Simon & Schuster, whose name is uh, Jack Romanos. And um, one day he invited me to lunch. And he arrived 20 minutes late. He did not apologize. And he immediately went into a long recitation about what was wrong with Bantam Books. And I said, why is he telling me this? He surely doesn't want to know it in print. And what he did was basically set me up to offer me a job as an executive editor. So I remember I said to him, good for you. he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you're thinking outside the box. I barely know what a royalty is. So that's that's great. So he did his sales pitch, which took 30 seconds because I was really interested. And then I had to, of course, meet the editor-in-chief. And that took a while because she was going to Frankfurt and all that. But we finally had a dinner which lasted four hours.
0: Oh my goodness.
2: My wife thought I had been mugged. We, we really hit it off. We didn't know each other at all, which is odd because I knew most of the people in publishing. So we really hit it off. And then we got into negotiations and I got them up to 55,000 from 50,000.
0: You're proving your negotiation skills right from the start.
2: I, I'll never forget um, my, first, my first public appearance was at an ABA in California and anyone who came into the booth, I was like a four-year-old. I said, I'm four days old. That's how long I had been in Bantam's employee. Um, and then he, he very wisely said to me, walk the aisles and see what is, what is going on with the competition? Because one of my jobs as executive editors was to cover the reprint territory, which doesn't exist for us anymore, but then was a very important part of, for a company like Bantam to buy to buy the paperback rights from a hardcover, hardcover publisher. And I came back from my first stroll down the aisles, and he happened to be there. I said, Jack, I can't believe it. All you guys publish the same thing. And you're all publishing too many books. And he said, oh, my God, you get A+. plus." So I got it right away. It just was a natural thing for me. I didn't think it would be. I thought it would be bored after being a journalist. I, wasn't, I was never bored. And uh, nine months after he hired me, Jack left to go to Simon & Schuster. My boss, Linda Gray, was promoted to his job, and then she had to find someone to fill her old job, and uh, she wasn't very good about knowing a lot of people, so I gave her the list of four people who I thought would be great for the job, and she tortured each and every one of them and never did anything about hiring them, and then one day walked into my office, closed the door, looked at me with very sad sort of beagle eyes and Said, it's got to be you. I said, don't be ridiculous. I'm, I'm, I'm nine months old. I don't know anything. I can't do that. I can have 20 some odd people reporting to me. And she said, don't worry, I'll help you. She used to be a school teacher. And she did. So they threw me into the shark infested waters and I, and I swam. And it was great. It was absolutely great. Also, at that point, y- you couldn't ask to be at a better place than Bantam Books. Because that was the time when they started publishing these, these sort of mega million papers a hardcover bestseller. Remember, Bantam was only a paperback house. Then it became a hardcover house. The first, the first one they did was Lee Iacocca, and they did Chuck Yeager, and they did Kitty Kelly and uh, um, Shirley McLean. It was thrilling to be at this kind of incredibly successful house, and I stayed there until our owners, Bertelsman, offered me the job to um, take over Doubleday, and that was that was an, uh, five years later four or five years later. and I, I was very sad to leave my lovely colleagues a wonderful event really smart people, nice people too. and um, I, and Linda, who I loved, and we we had evolved a tremendously good relationship. But my God, how could I turn down the opportunity to run a fabled, storied publishing house like Doubleday?
1: Speaking of Shirley MacLaine, Throughout your career, you've published everybody from major celebrities like that to complete unknown entities. Yep. What do you think the role of, and I'm sure it's changed like over the decades, but the role of platform and just celebrity notoriety plays in how well books perform?
2: Yeah, well, it's totally changed. You're absolutely right. At the time that I started, just being a celebrity was enough. Mm hmm particularly a movie or a television, any, anything with a wide mass market uh, visibility immediately helped you publish it because everyone knew who they were. Right. You basically, with someone like Shirley McLean or Kitty Kelly, we say no more than yes a lot of the times about where, she, where they would go. Now it's quite different. Now the, most publishers, and remember, I'm no longer, I mean, I'm, I'm a consulting publisher for Simon & Schuster, and I love it. But I have no executive responsibilities whatsoever, other than as a co Now everyone says, but yeah, but what's the platform? And I, I, I really worry that they worry too much about what the platform is, because I like to think that, that one of the jobs of the publisher is to take something that nobody ever heard of, like, let's say, The Curious Dog by, by um, Mark, whatever his name, is. No, no one ever heard of him. No one ever did and, and we we really marketed the hell out of that book. It became a gigantic bestseller. Mm-hmm. It also is probably one of the books I'm most proud of, of publishing because it's, a, I think, a perfect novel. I really do because it's told from the point of view of a 12-year-old kid who has Asperger's. But that, that doesn't happen much anymore. I mean, yes, yes, some of the really good publishers still can make a, quote, unquote, make a book. Uh, but so many of them are saying, well, the track record is terrible and they find excuses to not publish it or they don't have a platform. No, I'm not denying that, that the social media is really important in publishing today, but I just wonder sometimes if it's not too important. Obviously, when I started, there was no such thing.
1: Well, and that's something I hear from fiction writers sometimes because, you know, some editors and agents are even looking for some version of a platform for fiction writers like Colleen Hoover on TikTok or something like that. And a lot of fiction writers will say, well, how do I build a platform? You know, right. it's, it's a little easier if you're a celebrity or if you do prescriptive. No, 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 they're absolutely right. They're absolutely
2: right. I hired a private publicist to publicize my book because I'm a very nice publisher, but there's no way they're going to pay attention to it the way she does. So,
0: so Stephen, I'm really curious on when a totally unknown author came across your desk. Number one, how did they come across your desk? Because I'm assuming they must have been referred by an agent that you trusted or, you know, someone I assume would have put that in front of you, but then what was it about that proposal or, you know, that manuscript that made you think, yeah, this person's totally unknown, but I know we can make it successful.
2: Okay. So first of all, all the publishers I've ever worked for will not accept unsolicited manuscripts because if we did, we'd have to hire two or three people just to deal with that. So the only way you can get a major publisher to even look at a proposal is to be represented. So you need a literary agent. And you say literary agents that I trust. Nah, it, 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 there's somebody I don't trust and I still buy books from them. So it, it doesn't depend on my trust of those, although obviously there is, like like in any other business, there are some people you much prefer doing business with. I try very hard to look at what is put on my desk, not incentive. Yeah, and, and then it's a question, and often I have people reading for me so that I don't waste my time with stuff that is absolutely out of the question. So when I get something that I think is interesting, you know, I'm like anybody else. I I got this book, it's incredible. I can't put it down. I stayed up reading it, you know. So I've got to have a visceral response to the book. I still believe despite platforms and everything else that if you don't have enthusiasm for, for a project, why bother any great publishing story? And I can give you plenty of them always begins with a nucleus of people who love the book and then like a virus spreads all over the house and th- that really does help in publishing the book it really does we, you know we weren't counting how many books we published or we just did whatever we wanted to do because it was a hugely successful company now people are rightly much more selective about what they do so you know you say well this is really nice but I, I, either I have too many books to like it and I don't want to compete with my own books, which by the way is one of the, one of the great flaws of pu- some publishing houses they compete with themselves. Well, you know good God, it, it's hard enough to get out in the market and compete. Why compete with yourself? So you, you, you kind of you sort of get, get a list of all your acquisitions and say you know what this book that I got in is really great, but I have eight books that are compete with, it, so I'm not going to buy it. The most recent example was when I bought Elton John's memoir. I simply said to our CEO, "I am buying this book. It doesn't matter what it costs." That—that's how strongly I felt about it because it was one of the best proposals I think I've ever read. It happened to me with *The Curious Incident* also, where I said that I really—I said to the editor in chief, "We have to buy this book," and he agreed. And he—he basically did the editing and everything. He was great. Passion is what it's all about, really
1: our listeners will find that so encouraging because so much today and it's not wrong necessarily but there's a lot of emphasis of course on platform we've mentioned that but also just proposal and the pitch and you know all that kind of stuff again very important
2: you really have to get the proposal right and that's why some of the some of the bad agents let out really bad proposals well you want to sit there and edit the proposal before you think. so it, yeah it's really important because there's so much competition you have no idea year and sometimes you know the lesser the publisher the more submissions they get because the agents know the big ones won't publish it yeah the proposals really got to be good and and with fiction it, first of all with fiction it's not a proposal it, right. it's right it's either i'm perfectly willing to buy a novel based on let's say 100 or 200 pages and then a synopsis of what follows or something like that so there it, it, it's really in what in what you're submitting but with non-fiction it's a whole nother ballgame and you really got to do a great proposal i mean the elton john proposal was 38 pages long and actually i'll tell i'll tell you what happened he ceo immediately sent it to our the head of our parent company in germany and said you got to read this and he fell in love with it also so i i had nothing but support for that don't ask what i would have done if they hadn't let me buy that book because you know you got to go with your gut my gut said Elton John has so many constituencies. You know, he has gays, he has old ladies, love him, he has young, young people, he has a gigantic swath of people. And he, and you know, he and he's he's the, the book was so outrageous, and so and so completely honest. It was it was just irresistible. I also I also published, um, and this is talking to someone who really cares more about classical music and pop music. I also published Eric Clapton, but that, that, that was a no-brainer. I mean, you know, the guy's child fell out of a window. Fiction and nonfiction are completely different. They really are. You, you always gotta put your best foot forward no matter what you're doing. By, by the way, you know, a really sloppy proposal says, it's like a warning signal. Says, oh my God, if, they, if they're giving me this kind of crap, now, what am I gonna get later? So like with typos all over the place or misspellings. It's just not acceptable. It's just not.
0: Yeah. Well, Liz and I both ghostwrite book proposals as a large part of what we do every day. So we uh, <laughs> we definitely agree with what you're saying there. You know, I'm curious, Stephen, it was kind of just a throwaway line in the book. At one point you said that you really wanted to publish more music books, but that you had been burned by a lot of them. That was fascinating.
2: But that was classical enough.
0: Okay, okay, okay. Well, that's what I was kind of curious about. is yeah. like, tell no, me that, more about that because I love music yeah, books too. My,
2: my passion is classical music. It's more than reading. I, I, at Bantam, I published Beverly Sills's second memoir, which did horribly compared to the first memoir. Don't hold me to this, but I think we print we published two hundred fifty thousand copies, and I think we got a, half of the back. So that was not exactly a great success. Right. And I published a couple of other things and nothing ever worked. So I turned to everyone knows that I'm not about classical music. So I get them all the time. But I turned them down because as much as I want to publish them, I people just don't buy those books. And there are very few superstars in pop in, in, in classical music anymore.
0: That kind of um, makes me curious. Are there certain numbers? You know, we hear lots of different numbers thrown around in the publishing industry. What would be you know, considered good sales by your standards or by Simon & Schuster's standards? What would be like a, a well-performing book? How many copies would you expect that to sell?
2: First of all, it depends on the book. It depends sure. on how much you paid for it. For example, you can buy a modest book, let's say for $50,000, earn that out in no time. But, but if you spent $250,000 or a million dollars, you don't have to sell enough to earn out the book the advance completely you can still make money by not earning out the advance completely but you want to go as close to it as possible so it just depends on the book it just depends on, on the expectations for a book you, you sometimes buy a book no know, knowing well i'll be really happy if this sells twenty five thousand copies and i paid nothing very much for it so that'll be fine i wish more publishers did that less and less do when you're uh, swinging for the big ones which i did throughout my career you know, it's a whole nother ball game because, you know, you, you, I can't tell you what I paid for Elton John, but I, I can tell you that the agent said to me, I want um, eight figures. And um, he never got it, but let's say, let's say he got very close to it. So it's a lot of money.
1: I have a question. You have published politicians across the spectrum. Yep. And gotten some pushback that it seems so how tell me how you view the publisher's role because and we don't have to get into it but i imagine since you've published lots of different politicians you don't you know ideologically align with all of them so how do you view the publisher's role when it comes to like endorsement of ideas and that sort of thing or do you see it as that at all
2: here here, here's the deal i'm very clear about this personally i'm i'm a democrat and i'm left-leaning like. For better or for worse most people in New York publishing but I don't see that at all as as influencing my my choices in what I publish. Right. What I publish is is what I think would be of interest to mm. the public. And I publish and I and, and you know the proof is in the pudding. I mean I, I I published more Democrats than Republicans, but I've also published George W. Bush, which sold three million copies. Um, um, I, I published Bill Bill O'Reilly for um, most most of my career at um, at Broadway Books. That's who his, his publisher was when I got there, uh, and, and we you know we together. And when I say together, I really mean it because because he is he is very much involved in in the publishing of the books, and he's incredibly smart as a marketer, and he's not nearly as obnoxious as he is on television. So he's he, I really I really like him a lot, and you know we we've, we've done this killing series of his. Which it sold like 19 million copies of it. No franchise, no franchise in recent history has sold anything like that. So yeah, I took a lot of crap from people, especially my friends at cocktail parties, <laughs> right? But no, I don't care. I really don't care because I I knew that I had a very saleable thing here. Um, now, where won't I go? I won't go to um, people who, who are uh, sort of vicious, don't see any other side, or worse, who are reliable narratives. So, so people said to me, would you publish a book by Donald Trump? And I, my answer is always no. And they said, why? Because I don't trust that he'll tell the truth. That's all. Awesome. <laughs> he's, unreli- he's an unreliable yeah. narrator. Um, right. Right. Uh, and then, and then there are people who are usually successful who are sort of who are sort of toxic and vitriolic, and I won't publish them either. I mean, mm-hmm. I I really am going across the boards, all over the place. Met with a lot of presidents. I met with um, Hillary Clinton. I met with um, Laura Bush. I met with uh, a lot of people. I didn't I didn't end up publishing them, but um, I met with the Obamas, both of them. Um, Great, great meetings, by the way. But no, um, uh, it, it was too expensive. It was, no one's gonna, was gonna compete with the $60 million that, that Random House paid for, mm. which by the way turned out to be a really good investment. No, I, I, I just feel as long as, as someone said to me, that there was a tremendous amount of controversy around Simon & Juice's acquisition of Mike Pence. Now, I had nothing, nothing whatsoever to do with that. And someone said to me, would you acquire it? I said, absolutely. He said, why? I said, come on. He was the vice president to one of the most, for better or for worse, significant presidents we've ever had. Not significant. I mean historically significant in, in that he did such terrible things. Um so he has a as long as long as I felt that Pence would be honest in, in what he had to say. And then of mm-hmm. course when January 6th happened, then I, you know, he performed so splendidly. So I don't know if the book did very well, fr- frankly, but um. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I definitely would have required. it. I'm not sh- I, I I don't know what they paid. So um, I'm not yeah. sure how, why I would have gone, but yeah, for sure.
0: When I was just brand new at the publishing company that I worked for, I asked essentially the same question of the president of the company. You know, I said, "How how do we reconcile, you know, publishing something that perhaps we might disagree with? And I remember him saying to me, our role is to be agnostic as long as, like you've said, they are trustworthy. They can back up their claims with research. They've got evidence. You know, they've got the receipts for whatever claims they're making. Two the sources
2: for every, every fact, two sources.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. I haven't heard that, like that specific of a criteria.
2: Absolutely. I can tell you stories of, of great things like with Kitty Kelly, particularly where she could only get one and I couldn't do it.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
2: I won't do it because I'm not interested in lawsuits. Mm-hmm. You know, this right. is a very litigious country. I, uh, who wants to go through the expense and annoyance of having a lawsuit i'm not yes. frightened. Trump. when i published fire and fury i got a letter from trump uh, cease and desist and i just you know i wanted to say Are you out of your mind it, it just, we, we actually pushed up the update um i'm not frightened of that i just don't want to lose I, I want to be, i want to republish responsibly that's all
0: yes yeah well i think that makes a lot of sense so, are there any books that you are particularly sad that you lost? Are there any books that you felt like, oh, I should have, you know, I should have swung bigger for that one?
2: Yeah, 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 absolutely. The one that most upset me was uh, uh, Gates, the uh, Secretary of State, who, for many presidents, we had one of the best meetings. You know, these meetings sometimes give you a great preview of what it's going to be like to work with a work with the person. I'll never forget. I'll come back to that in a second, uh, Gates in a second, but I'll never forget when I met with uh, Anita Hill when, when she was right after that horrible business with, with Thomas. And she was, you know, she was a, a sweet, shy, unsophisticated woman from Oklahoma. And she was meeting with, a, you know, a bunch of mostly New York Jews in, at a lunch, at a fancy lunch. We did it in the corporate dining room. And remember, I took my staff, as a double day, I took my staff back to my office and I said boys and girls that was Anita Hill behaving what's she going to be like would you no no you don't understand she's important anyway I went against my instinct paid two million dollars for that book and it sank without a trace you got to trust your gut these meetings are important so now let me get back to Gates meeting was just incredible he was fabulous and then the agent who was someone I totally trust called me up and said see you're going to be furious with me, and please don't. But, but uh, Knopf has put down so much money for this book. There's no way you would pay it, and I've accepted it. So indeed, I lost out to Knopf on that book, and it was a gigantic bestseller, gigantic bestseller. So that, that's, that's one that, I, that really pains me, because I loved meeting him so much, and I think he had important things to say, which he told. He did. And, and Gates is very forthright which is very unusual for a politician. Abraham Verghese's novel, second novel, we lost out on because uh, he preferred a different editor, which I it was a really good editor, so I can't argue with that. The music critic of The New Yorker, Alex Ross, had a, had a proposal in for a book called The Rest is Noise, which has become a classic book. And I chickened out because it was too much money. I was really wrong, <laughs> really wrong. Such a great book. Those are three very different kinds of books that I'm really sorry that I missed out on. But if I, if I really want a book, I, I I become almost impossible and make, try to make sure I get it, but I'm very selective when I'm swinging that, that way.
1: Tell me a little bit about that. Just the gamble. Like, you know, we, we work with a lot of agents and I know that for them, sometimes this, the gamble is a little bit of the attraction. And I know in acquisitions, there's some of that too. Is that, you know, how do you think about that? Is there some sort of like kind of a rush you get? Is it, I mean, I know it's calculated and, and it, these are decisions by committee and it's not always up to you, but. If
2: I'm the president of the company, it is mostly up to me. Obviously I have to get clearance from my parent company. I'd be a lunatic to ever try to acquire something that my staff doesn't want to acquire. But basically- it's my responsibility. Is there a rush? Um, yeah, yeah I, sp- I, sp- I never thought about that way. I suppose there is a rush, but it's also the opposite, fear, because you're spending so much money. Although I must tell you, I don't worry that way anymore. If I honestly feel that it's worth $6 million, then I'm going to pay $6 million for it, or try to pay $6 Someone else may think it's worth $8 million. That's where I get into trouble you gotta, you got you to gotta be careful with what, what, I, what I and lots of other people call auction fever. I like to think that I'm not affected by auction fever, but don't believe that for a minute. Like anyone else, I am affected
1: by it. Right, right. And,
2: and, and that's why sometimes, sometimes when I was the runner-up on, on an auction, I wake up the next morning and say, oh, thank God. I'm that. It's, look, it's a business like anything else. And if you honestly believe that and it's a good investment, you, you do it. If you don't, you know, that's all. But it's, it's, it's a business like Las Vegas is a business. You know, there's no guarantees here at all. So you, run, it, it, you really are rolling the dice.
0: Steven, so from a lot of the agents that I've talked to recently, it seems like, especially since the Penguin Random House's attempted acquisition of Simon & Schuster, and I know, you know, HarperCollins has been dealing with the strikes and everything. It seems like the general temperature amongst especially the big five publishing houses has been that people have kind of taken a step back from really swinging big and taking big risks. It seems like publishers are right now kind of playing it safe and being a little bit more conservative, being much more cautious. Is that what you're seeing? or?
2: Uh, I think that one of the things that's affected why publishers are behaving the way they are right now is this whole diversity and inclusion aspect of of, of the world. Because I think that they are rightly very, very concerned about being diverse and being inclusive. Unfortunately, I think, and I've gotten into a lot of trouble for this, but such as such life, um, I think that sometimes they're, they're checking too many of the correct boxes and buying too many of the same kinds of books and that ultimately it'll all come to roost when they see that their sales are disastrous because while these books all have a market, they have a limited market and if everyone's doing it, They're all just fighting against each other and killing the market in a sense. When they say about stock market that it'll correct itself, I think that's what will That's what will, at least I hope that's what's going to happen in publishing, that um, it will correct itself and people will still be diverse and still be inclusive, but not to the point of lunacy. I mean, this is going to sound terrible, but it's not my remark, a very... Good friend of mine who's a brilliant agent, and I'm not going to tell you who his clients are because then we'll know who it is. I spoke to him the other day and I said, How's business? He said, Terrible. I said, Why? He said, I only represent old white guys. Right. He wasn't joking, by the way. That's an issue. Then everything you said in introducing the subject is also true, but don't for a minute hesitate to think that the publishers won't swing really big. So no one knows what Random House paid for Prince Harry. But I guarantee you it's at a level of money that is beyond all of our comprehension. Right. And you know what? It paid off. It's doing spectacularly. Yeah. So so I think that I think that almost all the big five will go for the gigantic bestsellers. Yeah, as uh-huh. I said, Random has paid sixty million dollars for the Obamas. It's, it's unheard of, and by the way, it's going to be fine. Um, and I, whatever they paid for Prince Harry is going to be fine as well. So I think those things are still going to happen. Uh, I, I'm really interested to see. I'm sure that Trump will do a book. I'll bet you it will not have the kind of um, auction that some of the other people have because I, because I think I hope a lot of people. Or like me, who just say he's just not reliable. So I, I I wouldn't go near it. Sometimes you say, you know, life is too short. Do I really want to get involved with Bono? I mean, Bono has a reputation for being impossible. I was off with Bono and I said no, before before I even saw it. I just didn't want to deal with some prima donna who thought he was a. I I'm sure he is, you know, a great intellectual. By the way, he's published by Knopf and it's doing very nicely. I don't I don't think it's doing anywhere near what they paid, which is somewhere between 8 and $9 million. So I don't think it's going to do that well. I, I won't tell you some of the other people I said, life is too short with, because they're currently very prominent politicians. And, and sometimes I'm really wrong. I'm totally wrong. I just get this in my head. There are a bunch of politicians, so I felt they're just, they're way too polarizing. I, mean, I really made a big mistake with Hillary Clinton. I, I ultimately published a novel she wrote with Louise Penny. And she's one of the most wonderful people I've ever met. I love her. And I was totally wrong. I should have gone after her book and everything
1: else. Publishing trends, like, are there, anything that you th- is, are there any trends that you think are tired or overdone or that you think we should move away from, or on the contrary, that excite you right now?
2: After I published Fire and Fury, I, I got about 700 proposals for books like that. I think I got eight proposals for Michael Cohn, different proposals. All, there's a case where I said, uh-uh. And I, I, I might have been slightly wrong, I don't think the book did great, but I think he was fairly honest, but I just felt he wouldn't be. And I felt it was more, I'm gonna get even with, with Trump kind of than anything else. After I published The Da Vinci Code, seven million books, like trying to be Da Vinci Code wannabes, it would be so nice if, if we could stop being sheep and create our own trends. I didn't realize when I published the Da Vinci Code that it was going to create a trend. I believe me, I didn't. I, I, I knew I knew it was a good book. I knew it would do well, but I never thought it was going to do what happened. And that's another thing, by the way, that's really interesting. I, I've, I've been blessedly involved with many, many huge successes, and in every case I thought they were good books, but it, I never ever thought that uh, when I came to Doubleday. And by the way, I did not acquire John Grisham. That best inheritance I ever got. When I arrived at Doubleday, John Grisham was being published, about to be published. I was very involved in the publication, but I did not acquire it. And, and when I read the book, I said, oh my God, the kind of narrative energy. I just couldn't believe it. So we, 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 we had a 25,000 copy first printing. And we thought we were geniuses because we said, all right, who, who's the marketplace for this? Oh, lawyers. So we marketed it to lawyers. And then then that was a classic example of word of mouth just taking over, taking over to the point that all we did was reprint. So it has one of the cleanest sales in history.
1: I was just going to say that's actually a good point. And sometimes we caution or I've cautioned um, authors who are getting ready to pitch. It's it's a balance when you're doing either agent research or you know, publisher research, a lot of people, you know, they, they go looking for, you know, agents who have a list that their book would fit on nicely. And that's not bad advice. But I've heard from a number of editors and agents say, say similar things as you just did that were like, you know, when I had one book, you know, sell really well, that became, you know, what that editor is mainly known for. All they started receiving is whatever lookalikes. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, that's good advice. But if you know that if they get pitched whatever as a comp for Da, da Vinci Code, you know, they-, they probably hear that a lot.
2: It's a delicate balance. But I still think that if you're, if, you're, if you're an author just beginning and you're looking for an agent, why would you not at least try to approach an agent that sort of does what, what your book is about? You really, it's irresponsible to go to some agent who has not, no interest or expertise in, in, in selling those books. I always tell authors who come to me and try to find an agent who you feel would appreciate what it is you're writing. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's their expertise, but if you look at an agent's list of authors, you can you can sort of glean a sensibility there. So you want the sensibility at least.
1: I feel like this has... Is- permeated through a lot of what you said, you know, especially going back to like the nucleus of the success of a book often starts with just a nucleus of people who really love it. You know, publishing to authors, you know, new authors or people on the outside who are trying to get in. It can feel like opaque and mysterious. And how do I do it? And there's these rules I don't understand and red tape and connections and all this stuff. But and all of that might be true, but it's still real people sitting behind these computers who just genuinely like books and are looking for good books you know it's just humanizing
2: here's what i often tell people a publishing house is a microcosm of what's out there it's a mixture of when i got the first 150 pages of the da vinci code in and i talked about this a lot in the book i gave it very specifically to about 15 people and every single one of them said my god this is amazing and by the way the first 150 pages of the Da Vinci Code did not have anything about the bloodline of Christ. So it was just a great thriller. When I got that kind of response, I said, ah, I think we have a winner here. And then the rest of it, as they say, is history. But we in publishing are really a microcosm of what's out there because we're all, we're all different. And as, as a publisher, it's very important for me to hire people who are different. I once said to... Uh, to an editor of mine who only published black authors and gay authors, I said, "That's great. I, I love publishing them, but you have neither a black editor or a gay editor. Why don't you get get one of those people who bring some expertise to, to the subject?" Yeah, that's
0: an that's a great great point. I I totally agree, and I think that across the industry, I do see a lot of a lot of progress in that regard. You know. I see like Sourcebooks has made that a huge effort, and I love to see that across the industry.
2: Sometimes, sometimes disastrously, but that's okay. Better to err in that direction than the other one.
0: Right. So the the subtitle of your book is Confessions of an Optimist, and I know I, I saw another um, interview that you did where you described yourself also as an enthusiast, and I'm curious where do you see optimism and enthusiasm in the publishing industry? Can you say more about that? And particularly for the aspiring authors who are listening to this episode, who, are, who f- might feel very far away from Pig Five Publishing and from this world that we're talking about, what kind of hope do you see for people like them?
2: Well, I, I, think, I think just to defend myself, uh, a lot of people think I'm very naive. Believe me, I'm not. Uh, but that's, they think that because I'm so optimistic and I'm so enthusiastic. Never confuse the two. One thing has nothing to do with the other. My feet are very firmly planted on the ground and I can be as big a pain in the ass as anybody you've ever met if I have to be. But that's not my natural inclination. And it's something that I think, this is not something facile. I mean, I, it's something I think actually contributed enormously to the success I've had in both my careers as a journalist and as a publisher. And that is that I've always been optimistic. At the horrendous age of 81, I still am very optimistic and very enthusiastic. I have very little time for these these cynical publishers, very little time. Maybe these wonderful young people who want to break into the publishing world should look a little bit about the publishing house and see, well, that, that guy is really so cynical. I don't, I don't want to even go there. You know? It's hard, though, because they don't have that many choices. I, I understand that. As your classic enthusiast, I, it's just very hard for me to say, I, I just say, keep it up. You know? Just be, make sure you're enthusiastic about your own thing. That's, that's another thing that's very important. Never submit something if you think it's okay. Only submit it if you think it's great.
0: Do you think that if uh, an aspiring author, you know, has has tried going the traditional publishing route and just is not as as enthusiastic and as passionate as they may may be about their own work, yep. even if they have you know an agent who's been advocating for them, but they're just not getting that traction for whatever reason, what do you recommend they do at that point?
2: Go to a small publisher. Okay. Look what I did. I knew. None of the none of the big publishers. First of all, I couldn't submit it to Random House or to Macmillan because I worked there, so I was already I was down from five to three, and my I had the best at one of the best agents in the business, and she said, "No way." So we tried, and they, they said, "Oh, it's wonderful, it's fun, but it's not going to sell," which I agree with, by the way. We went to another level of publishing, and I you know, there was a tremendous enthusiasm by the guy who acquired this book, an applause book. Of course, he left as soon as I got there, but the classic publishing story, you become an orphan. You keep on trying until you find something, someone who is enthusiastic, and you will. You will eventually. It may not be the most glamorous publisher or frankly, the best publisher, but if that's the best you can do, if you don't want to self-publish, which I assume most of your people don't want to do or shouldn't do, uh, then you, you take what you can get.
1: I love that, that just ending on the note of like,
2: you will. Yeah, it's, it's very, it's very discouraging. And I speak from personal experience. I mean, I have a couple of reject letters that should go into a textbook on how to write the nicest reject letter. I have one that's three pages long telling me how, book, how great the book was, but they didn't feel there was a, that there was an audience for it, which I totally agree with because I was a good publisher, I know.
0: Your audience is people like me, publishing nerds.
2: <laughs> I think I think you just gotta, gotta keep at it. You just gotta yeah. keep at it. And if you don't, then go into another business.
1: Yeah, we tell our authors all the time that if you are persistent and are willing to continue to like either make your craft better or your book better or your pitch better and take feedback and tweak and try again and send out a bunch more rounds of pitches and I almost guarantee people like that who have that kind of like grit and gumption and are just determined to succeed, that they will. There's a place.
2: I totally agree. As long as they go right to the right people. Yes. Yes, exactly.
1: right. It might take some time. Yeah,
2: no, believe me, I I can't remember because I choose to forget how long it took to sell my book, but it took a long time. And by the way, no one said they disliked the book, which of course course made made the bitter pill a little bit sweeter, but- they just didn't f- feel it would sell. I couldn't argue with that so yeah, absolutely. Just keep at it. You can't do it alone. you got you got to have a good agent or at least at least an enthusiastic agent who's willing to work, work it.
1: Yeah, yes a good partner yeah yes. Stephen, real
0: quick, do you have any great book recommendations that you'd like to share with everyone? any good books you've read recently?
2: The best book I read recently happens to be a Simon and Schuster book, but not because I worked for them. It's a one volume history of Watergate uh, by Mr. Graff. I can't remember his first name. It's just spectacular. I, I couldn't put it down.
0: Okay. It's
2: never been a one volume history of Watergate before. Okay. That's the best book I've read recently.
0: Cool. I'm right now reading um, Matthew Haig's uh, The Midnight Library. And? And, oh, love it. Can I'm like, I almost played hooky, you know, this afternoon so that I could just read this book.
2: <laughs> so wonderful when you find a book that you can just, time just fly. I was on a plane. I was so bored. So I went into my briefcase and I picked up the book about classical music. And the next thing I knew, we were in New York. <laughs> it was so great. It was just wonderful.
0: Yeah. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Steve. We're um, so, so honored.
2: Thank you. I appreciate it. Very great pleasure to meet you both.
1: Yeah, you as well. I know our audience is going to love this conversation. So great. Thanks for being part of the
0: Hungry Authors community. If you like this episode, could you do us a huge favor? Head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We would
1: so appreciate it. You can also follow us on Instagram at Hungry Authors or HungryAuthors.com, our website, to get more information about our masterclasses and upcoming episodes. Remember, that you have a story and a message worth publishing. And if you've got the hunger, you can make it happen.